I didn't have this in my notes, um, but I think probably the most appropriate way to begin the sermon is to say this. Pastor Ted was not Moses, and I'm not Joshua. But we have a lot to learn from this text. We have a greater Moses already, and we have a greater Joshua. And his name is Jesus Christ. But we're going we're gonna to look at this passage in some detail, but we're also going to look at one other passage in the New Testament, which I want you to turn to as well. So if you'll keep your finger in, De- in Deuteronomy 34 and go to Acts 20, I want us to read Paul's final address to the Ephesian elders, the men whom he had shepherded, the men whom he had cared for, the church that he had planted, and that he was no longer going to be with and would never see again. Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 17, and I will read through the end of the chapter, and then we will pray once more. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down, and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Lord, you know exactly what your people need in this moment, what we all need. And that's the word of God through the spirit of God. Blessed to our hearts and souls. 
So would you take these feeble words of this clay pot carrying the precious, priceless treasure of your word and strengthen your people for the days and the months and the years to come. We pray all this in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1758, another giant was taken from us, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, a man who many consider to be the greatest American theologian to ever exist. And on the death of Jonathan Edwards, many of you may know that his wife Sarah wrote a letter to their daughter Esther on that occasion, and that letter's been preserved. It's a very brief letter, and I'll share it with you now. Sarah writes to her daughter upon the death of her husband and Esther's father. She says, My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. Your ever affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. Well, we find ourselves in a similar place this morning, don't we? We read of the words of Israel losing its pastor of 40 years. We read of the Ephesian church losing its pastor of three years. And we read of a family losing its father. I think the words of Sarah Edwards are appropriate for all of us that a holy and good God has covered us too with a dark cloud. But oh, the goodness of our God in giving us our Pastor Ted for so long. For 46 of his 73 years, we had him. What a legacy he has left us. We are given to God, and there we love to be. And we are given to God, many of us, in large result, because of his faithful ministry among us for those 46 years. What shall we say? Well, we're going to look at two passages of Scripture this morning, those two that we've had read, Deuteronomy 34 and Acts chapter 20. And in these passages, as I've already mentioned, we have two great leaders who say goodbye. In Deuteronomy 34, it's Moses, who, much like our pastor, led his people for 40 years out of Egypt to the edge of the Promised Land and then back through the wilderness and then back to the edge of the Promised Land again. And much like our pastor Ted, Moses served God faithfully right up to the point of his death when he was taken home. And in Acts 20, we find a slightly different but no less painful scenario for the people of God. You have the Apostle Paul who spent three years in Ephesus, who planted the church, shepherded it, raised up its leaders, and then moved on, as he so often did and as he was called to do, to take the gospel elsewhere. Transitions happen with the people of God for various reasons as we see in even these two texts. But we have much to learn about how to trust God when your beloved pastor goes home. And so this morning, from these two passages, I want to draw out seven lessons, seven things to remember as we walk through this dark cloud. Here's the first one. Let's remember that it's appropriate to mourn. Let's remember that it's appropriate to mourn. We see this in both passages, don't we? 
In Acts chapter 20, we read that Paul had spoken to these Ephesians and their elders and said that he would not, be, he would not see them anymore. He would not see their face again. And as a result of that, we are told that there was much weeping on their part as a result of that particular piece of news. It wasn't so much of all the other things that Paul said that Luke chose to mine out and give us an insight into what the elders were feeling at this time, but it was the fact that they wouldn't get to see Paul's face again. And it says there was much weeping and that they were sorrowful most of all because of that word that he had spoken to them. And then in Deuteronomy 34, we see that the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Now, surely these two examples teach us that it is appropriate to mourn and also that mourning takes time. It takes time. Grief is not over in an instant. You know, an opinion poll was taken a few years ago that asked a group of people how long grief should last. The average response in that poll was 48 hours. Brothers and sisters, that is totally unrealistic. The people of Israel wept for Moses for a month, and that was all they did. As one of our former pastors, Rich Barcelos, wrote in a message to our congregation on Facebook, he said, All separations by untimely deaths are difficult. They are heightened, however, by the love expressed of the one taken from us. So intense love heightens grief. And we can't expect just to get over it. And the Bible doesn't expect you to get over it. And God doesn't expect you just to get over it. Our Savior knows what it's like to lose those closest to him, does he not? In the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, we read Jesus wept. Why was he weeping? Because he lost a friend. He just lost a close friend friend, Lazarus, had died. And even though Jesus knew that within a matter of moments he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, that did not stop him from wholeheartedly embracing grief. He allowed himself to feel the implications of death. Those who saw his weeping offered this profound commentary. See how he loved him. See how he loved him. Thank God we have such a tender-hearted Savior who can sympathize with us and is touched with our infirmities. God, one that doesn't just expect us to move on in two days. We have a Savior who validates the pain, who validates the emptiness, the confusion, the great sadness that we feel. At times like, Lazar, at times like Lazarus' sister, we could cry, Lord, if only you'd been here. This would not have happened. But how does Jesus respond to this? Does he chastise Mary and Martha? Does he wince, roll his eyes, shame them? Don't you know who I am? I'm the Savior. I can do things, something about this. Does he tell them with impatience to just get over it? No. With great sympathy, as he tells us elsewhere, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Because no one hates death more than Jesus. No one grieves death more deeply. And it's ugly violation of the original created order 
as Jesus. No one is more looking forward to the day of no more death than Jesus. And no one has done more to put death in its grave than Jesus. So, until he returns, though, we will grieve. We will grieve not as those who have no hope, as, those, as we've been reminded this morning, but our hope doesn't nullify the reality of the grief. It is appropriate to mourn. Second, let's remember that God's providence is mysterious and he does things we don't understand. Let's remember that God's providence is mysterious and he does things we don't understand. Think with me about Deuteronomy 34 again in the first half of that chapter. God leads Moses up and lets him look out at all the land that the people of Israel are getting ready to possess. And there's great detail given of the top of Pishkah and Gilead as far as Dan and Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah. And then he describes the city of palm trees. And then in verse 4, God says, this is the land that I swore that I would give Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you can't go. I thought, how strange of God. In a sense, it was preparation for him because God was doing a kindness to Moses and leading him up and letting him see the fruit of what God had done through him, bringing his people up to the edge of the promised land. But it was a greater reminder that he would, when he would enter into the promised land upon his death, he'd have something to compare it to. Wow, God, thank you for not taking me there and bringing me here, no doubt Moses said. But it is interesting that we get this little detail in verse 7 that Moses was 120 years old and yet his eye was undimmed and his vigor was unabated. He was just as lively and just as vigorous as he had always been. But yet God did not permit him to go into the land for reasons Larry explained earlier in the reading. Does that, not, does that description not remind you of Pastor Ted? Even as a man older than most of us, almost all of us, he was a man whose vigor remained unabated. He had the energy of a child even up till 73. And God took Moses up to peer into that land, a land that he had labored 40 years to enter, and yet God did not let him go in. And we see a, a similar thing in Acts chapter 20 with some of the descriptions of what's going on in Paul's life as he's getting ready to leave and move on. What did he say about What's going to happen to him as he moves on? He said, imprisonment, affliction awaits me. That's the one thing I'm sure of. I don't know much else, but I do know this. I'm probably going to go to jail wherever I go. God's providence is so mysterious. God's ways with his people are so strange. We don't understand them. He said that when he brought the gospel to Asia... In Acts chapter 20, verse 19, he was serving the Lord with all humility. We love that. Amen to serving the Lord with all humility. But he goes on and says, and with tears and with trials. Because that too accompanies all of our faithful service of the Lord. Serving the Lord is not all puppies and rainbows. Paul sat in prison for months at a time. Have you ever thought about this? Why would God take the greatest missionary the world has ever seen and put him in jail for months and years at a time? Think, 
Lord, doesn't he need to be out preaching the gospel? Isn't that what you called him and said you were sending him? Why do you keep laying him aside? How could it be that our pastor Ted, who so recently courageously fought his, fought his prostate cancer for years, receiving a cancer-free diagnosis merely weeks ago, die of a sudden heart attack? His systematic theology class was only halfway done. The three books that I ordered for him for premarital counseling that he was planning to do are still sitting on his desk. His revisions for our 2019 membership directory are still in the bag. He hasn't given them to me. His newly formed Proverbs Club had just begun. His ambitions for upcoming book projects were just beginning to solidify. Charles Spurgeon was often laid aside from ministry because of sickness. He spent if not as much, nearly as much time sick as he did preaching, oftentimes coupling the two and preaching sick. But he wrote an article for his Sword in the Trowel, which was his magazine and newsletter, which published many of his writings and sermons and things. And in an article entitled, Laid Aside, Why? He writes the following. Mysterious are the visitations of sickness. When the Lord is using a man for his glory... It's singular that he should all of a sudden smite him down and suspend his usefulness. It must be right, but the reason for it does not lie near the surface. How is it that a heart eager for the welfare of men and the glory of God should find itself hampered by a sickly frame and checked in its utmost usefulness by attacks of painful disease? Happily for us, our happiness does not depend upon our understanding of the providence of God. We are able to believe where we are not able to explain. And we are content to leave a thousand mysteries unsolved rather than tolerate a single doubt as to the wisdom and goodness of our Heavenly Father. May God allow us to do that, brothers and sisters. May we leave a thousand questions unsolved rather than doubt the singular kindness of our God. He does not owe us an answer. He has given us plenty. Spurgeon continues, Is it not good for us to be nonplussed and puzzled and so forced to exercise faith? Should we not ourselves remain as foolish and conceited as a spoiled and pettied child if all things were arranged according to our judgment or that would be fit and proper to us? He concludes, ah, it is well to be cast out of our depth and made to swim in the sweet waters of mighty love. We know that it is supremely blessed to be compelled to cease from self, to surrender both wish and judgment, and to lie passive in the hands of God. That's where we find ourselves this morning. Let us lie passive in the hands of our God. While his providence is unsearchable, we must tenaciously grasp that it is always and unmistakably and irrevocably good for all of his people. It has been well, it is well, and it will be well with our souls. All things that come into our lives pass through the hands of our loving Father, especially hard things. And the all things of Romans 8.28 
include death of Romans 8, 38. Let's not forget that. When it says that he works all things together for good, it includes the death mentioned 10 verses later. Number three, let's remember that God's word is central and his promises are still true. Let's remember that God's word is still central and his promises are still true. Interesting to note, in Acts chapter 20 again, as Paul is describing his ministry among the Ephesians, what sorts of things does he say about that ministry? He is continuously and almost irrepressibly talking about the ministry of the word of God that he did in their midst. In verse 20, he says he did not shrink from declaring to them anything that was profitable and teaching them from house to house. What was he teaching? What was he declaring? The word of God, the gospel. He says in verse 21 that he testified both to Jews and to Greeks of what? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That was his continual message, the gospel message of salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ coupled to the engine of repentance. And then we see also that he says... He testified, according to his ministry in Acts chapter 24, that he, had, that he was looking forward to finishing his course and complete the ministry that he'd received from the Lord Jesus Christ. What was that ministry? He says, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's why he was sent. That's what he did. Everything about Paul's ministry was word ministry. And so when he was leaving them, he says to them in verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then in verse 34, 32, he says, now, now that I'm leaving, I commend you to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. You don't need me as much as you need my gospel, as you need my word. And may that word be sufficient for you and able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Brothers and sisters, all disciples are made and all healthy churches are built exclusively and only on the Word of God. No matter who is preaching or leading, the Word of God is always central. Every good thing that came into this world through Pastor Ted came through his handling of the Word of God. It was the Word of God that he used to build us up. It was the Word of God that he taught us. It was the Word of God that brought the prophet P-R-O-F-I-T. <laughs> when I read Romans 8, or when I read Romans 8, back on Monday evening at our prayer gathering, or when I welcomed us yesterday morning at the funeral with a reading from Isaiah 65, I tried to do that intentionally. Because I tried to do it for two reasons. First, we had just lost a pastor, and our comfort is only source is in the Word of God. But second, to remind us that what truly does the work of, in the church, it is the Word of God blessed by the Spirit of God to the people of God. That is what always has done the work in the church. While God uses men, for sure, and means, the men and means are never ultimate. The Word of God is. Martin Luther, reflecting on how the Reformation happened and why it advanced so successfully as it did, said, take me for example. I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. 
Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, (laughs) only loser, with my Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Had I wanted to start trouble, which Luther was known and could have done, he said, I could have started such a little game at Worms that even the emperor wouldn't have been safe. But what would that have been? A mugs game. I did nothing. The word did it all. And that's exactly what our pastor Ted would say to us this morning. Why are you talking about, you're talking about me like I did everything. The word did it. The word did it. Yes, God used me, but it was the word that did it. Pastor Ted knew this, which is why he built his ministry on the word of God. This is why alongside being a caring shepherd, he was a rigorous scholar. This is why he led our group leaders through a study of word-centered church last year. Because he knew that the word must continue to be at the center of all ministry in the church. That's why he was chaste and suspicious when it came to church trends that he saw that seemed to decentralize the primacy of the word of God in the life of the church. This is why in addition to leading a new members class, he taught a systematic theology class. This is why he was a committed leader and teacher of Bible studies to various groups of people for decades. Pastor Ted knew that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Ephesians 2.20 He knew that healthy churches are churches that according to Acts 2.42 are devoted to the apostles' teaching. Brothers and sisters, Pastor Ted wanted to build, by God's grace, a durable church. And durable churches are not built on men. They're built on the Word of God. And he knew that. That's why he's receiving a reward of gold and silver and precious stones. Not wood, hay, and stubble. Not not the stuff that Paul said those super apostles that had all that charismatic personality, and he had it, but he knew that wasn't going to build the church. But those super apostles in Paul's day had so much speaking ability and were able to weave so many fine arguments and speak so eloquently and tried to build their church and lay their foundation on something different than Jesus Christ. And Paul says, listen, they might be saved, I'm not super confident of it, but if they do, they're passing through as through fire because all their work's getting burned up. It's not going to last because it wasn't built on Jesus Christ. But praise our God that he used our pastor to build Jesus Christ into us, to form Christ deeply into us, and to lay a solid foundation in this church of the word of God expressed chiefly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why Pastor Ted built an army of preachers and teachers through the years. It was never just about him and his preaching. He was the biggest cheerleader of me when I didn't even deserve it. He sat there Sunday after Sunday, amening, remember, and encouraging me. And then after the sermon, he would say, Mark, two things every, every Sunday. This is what he gave me. Here's what was personally edifying to me, and here's the grammatical mistakes you made. Always faithful to do it. And he would say, I know 98% of the people out there didn't even pick it up. But there might be 2% out here 
and they're going to pick up on that. And that was our running joke together. And then I would joke about his spelling, and then he would say, you got me. Because we all know that brother could spell with all that he tried, he spelled. But for Pastor Ted, what thrilled him most was to hear the preaching of the Word of God. He loved it. No matter if he was doing it or someone else was doing it, he loved to hear the preaching of the Word of God. And here's the good news, beloved. The Word of God is going nowhere. The Word of God is going nowhere. The same thing that God used to build this church will continue to build this church. The same God that speaks through his Word will continue to speak through his Word, no matter who's doing the speaking. The church is, as someone has called it, a creature of the Word. It is sustained, created, and nourished by the Word of God. We are brought forth by the Word of truth. We are sanctified in the truth. We will be brought to complete maturity by the truth. Some men can preach the gospel better than others, but no man can preach a better gospel. And it is the gospel and the gospel alone that is the power of God unto salvation. Number four, let's remember that God is faithful to provide his church with leaders. Let's remember that God is faithful to provide his church with leaders. We see it in Deuteronomy 34 with the appointment of Joshua to step in and lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And notice it says of Joshua in Deuteronomy 34, 9, that the, that the Lord had put his spirit of wisdom upon him, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then in Acts chapter 20, verses 28, verse 28, Paul, in leaving the Ephesians, he was not leaving them alone. He was leaving them with the leaders that God had used him to raise up. Paul never wanted a church to go leaderless. Even when he was writing to Titus, he was instructing him his apostolic assistment. What was the first thing he wanted Paul to do in those new churches that were being planted in Crete? Leadership. Get good, godly elders to lead those churches. That was Paul's heart and desire. And by God's grace, he continues to provide continuity. You see it throughout Scripture in the midst of all painful transitions. In Ephesus, through, though Paul was leaving, the elders were still there to oversee the church. In Israel, though Moses was leaving, they still had Joshua. The Ephesian elders were no doubt anxious with Paul leaving, especially in telling them that he would never see them again. Additionally, the Israelites must surely have been fearful after Moses died. They knew what Moses had done. They had seen God work through him. And Deuteronomy 34 tells us, never was there a man like this man that God had used to work and bring blessing and help to his people. They knew what Moses has done, that he had been a great leader and that he'd be sorely missed. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 34 that there has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, no one who knew God so intimately, no one who worked so many wonders. There'd never been another prophet like Moses. Israel would never have another Moses. But they did have a Joshua. Joshua, it says in our text, was full of the spirit of wisdom. And Joshua also became a great leader for Israel. Joshua, brothers and sisters, never became another Moses. He was not really like Moses. He didn't do the things Moses did. God's people did not need another Moses. They needed a Joshua. And that's why God gave them a Joshua. The Ephesian church didn't need Paul. 
They didn't need another Paul. They needed the Ephesian elders that Paul had raised up and trained during the three years he was among them. Brothers and sisters, Moses died. Paul's le- Paul left. God's purpose continued. God's purpose does not die or God's purpose does not leave. Moses died, but the future of God's people did not die with him. Paul left, but the gospel continued to advance through the church in Ephesus. Brothers and sisters, praise God that we still have leaders. You have Keith Maddy. You have Keith Withrow. You have Thad Gunderson, and least of all, you stuck with me. Pastor Keith Maddy has loved you and served you for over 30 years. Teaching you, praying for you, and giving our heart, the church, for, the heart for the nations that it has, is owing in large measure to his faithful ministry among us. Pastor Keith Withrow has loved you and does love you. As a longtime church member of two decades, a faithful deacon, and now a faithful pastor. He loves God's word, he loves your families, and he wants to see Jesus at the center of every heart and every home in this church. Pastor Thad loves you, and he's captured your hearts quickly. Faster than any person I've ever seen in my 16 years here. He has pastored you through his faithful encouragement, his teaching, his example, his family, always calling our attention to who Jesus is and why he's worthy to be loved and trusted. Beloved, we are a blessed people. We are a blessed people. Any church would be rich to have any one of these three men pastor them. And we've got all of them. And behind each of them is the strong support of their dear wives, Joy and Natalie and Kim and my wife, Katie. Of course it will be different. It will feel different. We are not Pastor Ted. You all know that. But we want to do all we can as under-shepherds to love you and point you to the great and chief shepherd, Jesus. I couldn't be more grateful, and P.T. felt this way as well. He often reminded us how thankful he was for the team God was assembling to help lead us. As thoughts of Pastor Ted's retirement grew closer, P.T. often reassured us as elders in meetings that he felt so good about the team God was raising up. He was so confident that the work would carry on even when he was, quote, off the scene. Brothers, Pastor Keith... Maddie, Pastor Keith Withrow, and Pastor Thad, love you. And brother pastors, I want to say just a brief word to you. I encourage each of us, along with myself, to serve this body the way Paul encouraged the Ephesian elders to serve the the body that he was leaving behind. I have no doubt that Pastor Ted would take these words on his lips if he could speak to us in Acts chapter 20, verses 34 and 35. He would say, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And boy, did our brother pastor live that out. He knew the blessing of a life given. And he would encourage us to do the same thing. Number five, let's remember to whom we belong Let's remember to whom we belong. Do you notice how Paul describes the church here when he's addressing the elders? He says in Acts 20, verse 28, care for the church of God, which 
he obtained with his own blood. Israel was God's people. It was not Moses' people. The church at Ephesus was not Paul's church. It was God's church. And that's what Paul reminded the elders to remember. Listen, brothers and sisters, we have lost our founding pastor, but we have not lost our senior pastor. And it ain't me. It's Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church, and he is not going anywhere. This is why when Pastor Ted led in prayer to begin our elders' meetings, so often the first words out of his mouth, I, was just, I could almost predict it. It's just how deeply it was ingrained in his heart. Heavenly Father, thank you for these sheep before we'd pray for you. These are your sheep, he would say. They are not our sheep. We are your under-shepherds. You are the chief shepherd. He said that again and again and again, did he not? He knew that this church was not any man's church except the man, Christ Jesus. We reminded each other from time to time that every pastor is an interim pastor. We are only here for a time and are called to accomplish the purpose of God in our generation But the plans of God transcend all people. And he and his plans are bigger, praise his name, than any one of us. Progress in the kingdom of God hinges on no one but God alone. We don't build God's church. Jesus does. That's his job. HBC, you are a blood-bought church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not forget that there is one and only one head of the church and we belong to him. Number six, let's remember that God still has work for us to do. Let's remember that God still has work for us to do. For Joshua, his job just got started. He was to lead the people into the land, to take possession of it. And I've been reading the book of Joshua just providentially, not because of anything happening recently these these last few days. And just seeing all the responsibilities Joshua had in determining the land and divvying things up once he had Not to mention leading the people to conquer it first. Acts 20, Paul's instruction was to keep shepherding. Shepherd the flock of God. Keep keep working with the Ephesian church. Brothers and sisters, our work as a church is not done. Think about this with me. Why was Pastor Ted given to us as a gift of the ascended Christ? Why was he here for 46 years? What was his calling Well, he read these verses in our hearing many times. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us what his ministry was. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Pastor Ted was here to equip us to do the work of ministry, which is cheaply expressed in teaching us to love each other well and build each other up. And I would say he succeeded in that deeply. As I've said to many people, Pastor Ted so much didn't so much build the church into himself as he built himself into the church. He built his love into us. 
And you cannot shepherd a church for 46 years and not have that DNA rub off. We are a loving church because he was a loving pastor. And so let us, while we miss PT, the great, one of the greatest ways we can honor him is to love each other as he loved us, to be what he so desired us to be, which is to equip us to minister to each other, to care for each other, and to love each other. PT's mission was similar to the Apostle Paul, which is similar in many ways, not always, but similar in this way, at least, to all pastors. In Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He labored here for our spiritual maturity. And even in His passing, it is an opportunity for us to grow in spiritual maturity. Is it not? He would be thrilled to know that even, he, even in his passing, he is being used to spiritually bless and mature his people because we are having to go on without him and we're having to adjust to his absence. P.T., like the Apostle Paul and every other pastor, is called to warn and teach and to bring God's people to maturity. But as we see two chapters later, this is done when God's people do the same thing to each other. The same words, I've reminded you of this before, the same words that Paul uses in Colossians 1.28 to describe his ministry, he also uses to describe what the Colossians are to do for one another. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So what a legacy that we can now take up that mantle to do what PT did for us. My point is this, there is no better way we can honor the memory of our dear pastor than to learn from, lean into, and live out the instruction that he gave us and the example that he set for us. Let's live the life for each other that PT lived before us. Let's love one another. Let's care for one another. You stay around a church long enough, and this will happen. PT's love for the body of Christ has been absorbed by this congregation for nearly 50 years. The best way we can carry on that legacy is by doing for each other all the things that in Christ he did for us. After serving at his side for nearly a decade, I can assure you of this. More than anything else, P.T. wanted this church to love Jesus and love each other. That's all he wanted. <laughs> That's all he wanted. If you hadn't yet come to Christ, he wanted you to come to Christ. If you had come to Christ but hadn't yet been baptized, he wanted you to go public and be baptized and join the church. If you were attending the church but hadn't yet joined the church, he wanted you to join the church. If you had joined the church but weren't engaging fully in the life of the church, he wanted you to engage more fully in the life of the church. That was his, that was his ministry. That was everything that he did for us. If Pastor Ted could speak to us now, I'm sure he would say to us what Paul told the Philippians, Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Or in Philippians 4.9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Let us do that.
And finally, number seven, let's remember to be strong and courageous. Let's remember to be strong and courageous. After God called Moses home, he told Joshua three times in Joshua chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 9, to be strong and very courageous. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that challenges would come after he left. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Now, I'm not presuming at all that because of PT's passing that we're going to have a flood of false teachers come in here and try to drive everybody else away. That's not my point. My point is, is that with any transition, there are unique challenges that come with that. And we see it with Joshua and we see it with the Ephesian elders. We must not be so, not so naive as to think that Satan isn't looking to take advantage of us right now. For until Jesus returns, he will continue his attacks on Christ's churches. And if, if he can rip us apart now, he's going to try to do it. He will do anything he can to sabotage unity, to sow dissension and erode trust. And he does it through our words. He loves to create disconnect and fertilize contempt. I want you to get very familiar with his hiss. And I want us to call one another, call one another on it when we hear it. Therefore, for God's glory, let us resist him tenaciously. Let us make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let us stay alive to God's great love for us in Jesus so we are able to be more kind, humble, and forgiving. Let's commit to take the log out of our take the log in our own eyes more seriously than we take the speck in anyone else's. Let's take less offense and overlook much in love. Let's each of us engage in some holy competition. The way PT would often describe it. Let's be the chief repenters and the main forgivers. That's our competition. Those who speak words of life, bring encouragement, and always work for healing. Pastor Ted would want it no other way. He never let go of relationships. You know that. Even when, to use the quote from What About Bob, which he would have never understood because he didn't watch movies, but What About Bob back in the early 90s when he says, I've learned to deal with relational issues this way, that don't, don't sever that phone, just treat it as if it's temporarily disconnected. But make that call again. And he always did. He always did. So let's always work for healing. Let's bring life. Let's bring encouragement. Brothers and sisters, it takes courage. It takes real, real courage to go through times like this. And there's one thing I know, if there's one thing I know about this congregation, you are, by God's grace, a strong and courageous people. You're so strong by God's grace. You're so courageous. And you've been made that way through suffering. God has measured out many tribulations to this congregation over the years. We've lost godly mothers and fathers in their old age, like most recently our sister Faith Reed. And there are many, many more in these categories that I could name, but I'm already over time. We have lost young children like Ezra Klein. We have lost young mothers like Lynn Blakeman Shreve. We've buried faithful deacons like Gary Lawless. 
we've said goodbye, more accurately see you soon, to our young brothers, Sean Golly and Chad Cotiller. We've lost godly servants like Joy Malone. And all those trials have built in us a durability to lose a pastor. We can make it, brothers and sisters. It'll be hard, but we can make it. One of the conversations I can recall having with Pastor Thad after he became an elder was how grateful I am that God has enabled this church's members to die so well. That's the mark of a great leader and a great pastor. It's not the numbers of people. It's not all of that. It's can they die holding on to Jesus? And did they make it to the end? It may not feel this way, brothers and sisters, but this trial is a gift of God to us for our perseverance. This trial is right up there with the toughest losses that we have ever experienced. But God has made us scrappy and rugged and has prepared us for this by developing grit and endurance in us with hard providences through the years. Praise His name that He would count us worthy for such suffering. And glorify His name by demonstrating before this watching community and the unseen cosmic powers. We're going to show them something by God's grace. We're going to show them that God is all sufficient to bear us up and carry us forward because He is our strong and loving chief shepherd. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the opportunity this morning to be here together. Thank you for the way your providence unfolded that on, the, that on the next day following a funeral we would have the opportunity to gather for corporate worship on your day. Thank you that we can be reminded of these precious truths from your word this morning. Comfort our hearts. Strengthen us for the days ahead. Go with us. We thank you that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We praise your name. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.